High Performance Podcast, where we share with you the stories, tips, tricks, and strategies of motocross and off-road races, health and fitness experts, and everyone in between who has an inspiring story to share. Okay, today we've got Alan Pierce on the podcast. Thanks for jumping on, Al. No worries. Uh, pleasure to be here. So I've been following your stuff for a couple of years now. Um, I really love your research. The research I've seen you do, I think it probably relates to my listener base quite a bit. And we're going to cover those topics, talking yeah. about strength, um, unstable surface training, concussion. What For the listeners that don't know who you are, can you tell us, how you sort of started along that line of research? Okay, so I've been around a long time. Um, I'm pretty old. <laughs> so my journey starts back from the 1990s where I, I was born and grew up in Perth um, and did my undergrad at uh, Edith County University uh, in a, a Bachelor of Science um, in Biomedical Science uh, and I guess that's where it first started because uh, I did a fourth year, which is an honours year, um, where I looked at, um, I guess, the neuromuscular aspects of muscle damage. So delayed onset muscle soreness, so all that sort of stuff from eccentric exercise. You know, you wake up the next day and you're feeling like, oh, geez, where did those muscles come from? They hurt like buggery. Um, so what I did was I looked at the central nervous system um, responses to that and that's kind of where I started, sort of started from um, and then following that um, I did a post-grad in um, sport and exercise science um, and then I've also then did a PhD in uh, neurophysiology where I looked at um, at the time it was very new and not quite understood but the neuroplasticity as we call it now of um, skill acquisition so um, I used a, a fancy technique called transcranial magnetic stimulation to look at the um, central nervous system um, and I did basically sort of brain mapping of Olympic athletes who were involved in racket sports because it's one side versus the other so I can have a look and see what happens to the brain um, when people practice a lot with one side so um, it's not something that I would generally say you should do anyway but I just wanted to it was more about like what's going on in the head. So, um, so if once I sort of finished, I moved across to Melbourne, um, sort of did a few academic jobs, and then um, a guy called Dawson Kidgel came along. And uh, may, some people may know Dawson, maybe not. He's sort of relatively quiet on the social media front, <clears throat> but um, certainly big in strength training. And so he and I started to get into understanding the neural mechanisms of strength and conditioning. And uh, one of the first things that we wanted to look at was what is the central nervous system doing when someone gets strong really quickly? And so we've done probably about 30 or 40 research projects looking at that. Um, and uh, we continue to do work today in that. And in particular, we're looking at what we call cross-education, um, which is uh, training one limb and getting the other limb strong because it's got rehabilitation 
um, connotate, you know, out, outcomes from that. Um, but in the meantime, I then also kind of, you know, and I do strength training research, um, you know, sort of just, you know, it sounds awful, but for fun, because it's, it's really <laughs> like, I, I truly enjoy it because it's, it's good fun to find out what's going on. Um, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in um, training athletes like you are and, and what you do. I, I want to look at the sort of the mechanisms from a physiological perspective. Um, but at the same time, I also sort of diverted off into brain injury because I was really interested in understanding the neuroplasticity of brain injury. And that also started when I was doing my PhD with um, a colleague who was looking at stroke and trying to understand how the brain reorganises and, and, and adapts, which is, again, what we call neuroplasticity uh, following stroke. But I would then moved into brain injury and then that led me to concussion in about 2009, 2010. Um, and then she hit the fan in about 2012, 13, when Greg Williams um, sort of basically came out to say that he's struggling with, with uh, you know, um, memory issues, um, mood disorders um, based on his history of, of head injuries when he played for Carlton and, and, um, uh, and a couple of other clubs, which I can't remember off the top of my head. So that's kind of, in short, where, where I lie. So I do both uh, mainly concussion research now, but, but I also work with Dawson um, with um, strength training, and that's, that's some of the stuff that we'll talk about. Yeah, awesome. I, I love that, the skill acquisition stuff too. Like, well, that's one of the big things I get all our clients learning how to juggle. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, for that very reason, for the, like the neuroplasticity and, and you very quickly learn that one side of your body is not performing as well as the other side. So yeah. trying to balance that out. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, uh, one, I guess one of the myths of, of, that we can sort of start on already is that, um, you know, basically our brains, you know, have to work together across. And so juggling is really good because you've got to get both hemispheres communicating with each other. There's, there's no strong evidence that the left side of the brain is for this and the right side of the brain is for that. Um, and there's no yeah. myth. It's another myth that we only use 10% of our brains. You yeah. know, doing activities is, is required both sides of the brain. It, it requires all of the brain because you've got yeah. to have frontal parts of the brain talking to the back part of the brain, which then talks to the motor area of the brain that makes your hands hands move and juggle. Um, so it, it's, it's what we actually now call functional connectivity. So it's a very important uh, activity to do to engage the whole brain. Yeah, 100%. It's um, I, I read somewhere I can't remember where it was, but they did a study into high like high level athletes or world class athletes across a, all like golf, tennis, football, soccer, yeah. and what the the top ten percent of the like high achievers in all across all those sports could perform the skill the same with each hand or each foot, like they could kick the ball the same with their left or right, mm-hmm. they could use the racket the same with their left or right, so. Yes, it's a it's a quality that elite sports people share. Yeah, absolutely, and it kind of shows the, I guess the the ability of of that sort of elite of the elite to be able to you know what they can do, um, you know, through practice and also some obviously um, genetics as well. You know, um, having that that you know nature versus nature nurture type scenario. Um, you yeah. know, you've got to have some 
obviously talent, but if you don't work at it, then you're not going to get anywhere. And you'll probably see a lot of potential in a lot of people, but they just don't put the the amount of, of training in required. And that doesn't have to be the same thing over and over. It's doing different things to really engage the whole brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Some people have got that bit of gift of natural ability. Um, if you haven't got that, you've just got to, like you say, put in a bit more work to get there. And yeah. Then... yeah, absolutely. And you, and you do see the people who made it who just have worked their asses off. Yeah, exactly. So with the, the strength, I'd, lo- I'd love to start there. I guess yeah. that's what sort of led me to your, in the first place when I started following yeah. you a couple of years ago. And that was through uh, Christian at Woodford. <laughs> I did, yeah. did a bit of stuff, a couple of workshops down there with him and he referenced you. That's when I started following you. Right. Um, so the, the research you've done into the role of the nervous system and it's it, the role it plays in our ability to produce strength. So I think that's a big myth out there with people, which I'm well sure you're well aware of, is that to think that to get stronger, we've got to put on muscle. And when we put on muscle, we're going to get bulky. When we get bulky, yeah. we're going to get slow. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's not the case. So can you tell us what you found in that area? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, with Doss and I, we've always worked on the hypothesis that strength training and skill training have the same mechanisms in the brain, that is, for the central nervous system. And, and strength training is a form of skill training. So... Um, and, that, and that's come from understanding that people can get strong really quickly in that sort of first four to six weeks without any muscle hypertrophy or, or, or any other morphological change in the muscle. And so, um, and interestingly, you know, up until about 2006, um, you know, despite probably 40 years of, of sports science or, you know, prior to that, physical education, whatever they wanted to call the term prior to 1990, um, because sports science didn't really exist as a, as a discipline until about around that time. It was more in the, the phys ed space, and that's, you know, something I didn't want to become. I was not a phys ed teacher. Um, yeah. So <laughs> apologies to the phys ed teachers out there, but, but sports <laughs> science kind of evolved from that, and they sort of started around 1990. But interestingly, you know, um, there was no understanding of how people got strong quickly um, until about 2006 um, when um, a guy called Caffarelli from the United States showed using TMS that people can get strong within 12 days or six days actually. And that was purely through the central nervous system activating the muscles. So what we were thinking was, okay, well, you know, we've got to understand what is the nervous system's role uh, and what we were able to show is that the drive from the from the, the motor cortex and the and the brain to the muscle was what was actually improving strength, not you know bulkiness or changes in the muscle itself. Um, down the track, um, yeah, you do get morphological change, but that whole myth about getting big is is I, I, I still I'm still surprised that that myth is still around. You know, um, yeah. despite the fact that We've got thousands of, of, of research studies demonstrating that it's not a quality of, of strength. You know, um, strength is a neural measure, you know, a neural um, contribution to recruitment of muscle. And that's how you get strength. Because strength is basically force production. And so if you, uh, if you don't have that ability to generate force, you won't get strength. It doesn't matter how big the muscle is. So... 
um, I guess that's, that's one of the things that we've got to try and keep telling people is that by lifting weights, you'll get strong, which is healthy, and you, but you won't get big. Yeah, well, I guess it comes back to, to that thing of the, the intent behind the movement as well, doesn't it? When we're, when we're trying to build strength, um, you can see people going through the motions with doing whatever the movement is. Um, creating very little, bringing in very little intent to the to the movement, yeah. which in in turn is is recruiting very little of the nervous system. Yeah, and that's and that's a lot a lot of work that Dawes has shown as well is is that um, if we uh, and obviously we have to preface this in the fact that in science we we can't do necessarily movements that we'd like to look at say in the gym, so we have to try and use models to understand what's going on. So a lot of our work has been based around just a bicep curl, just to try and understand what's going on. You know, obviously we'd like to do multi-joint movements and, and, and whatnot, but that then reduces the rigour in the science and, and it makes it easier to, to people to attack So um, and say that's bullshit. So what we have to do is, okay, well, let's let's just look at the bicep. Let's see what the bicep's doing. Yes. Um, and what we've found with that whole skill strength aspect is that um, we can get people just to, to, to do a, a movement at their own pace, you know, and, and you know, we can equalise the, the volume and the tonnage and the, and the intensity. But what we've found is that the increased strength but also increased neural drive to the muscle is when we actually challenge the subject to work um, in, a, in a particular tempo. So it's not necessarily purely about time under tension, but it's them trying to match um, what what we're asking them to do adds an element of, of skill to that. Um, yeah. And what we've found is that people have gotten stronger and we've seen a, a, an increase, um, you know, central nervous system drive or integrity as a, as a basis of that. And that's also helped with this cross-education phenomena as well. So we can get better outcomes through having a skill element to it. So it's doing the basics really well rather than just doing some fancy stuff. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I like it. So, and I guess the other thing there with, like, people to actually put on muscle, for most people, it's actually quite difficult. Like, they don't understand how hard it is to to actually build muscle. You've got to do a lot of volume and be eating a lot of food to actually get your body to produce mass. Um, And you've got to have a a fairly... I guess, uh, favourable somatotype as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, if you look at some of the, you know, the endurance athletes, yeah, they're doing a lot of endurance, but they're doing a lot of strength as well. And they're certainly not bulking up anywhere near what, you know, you would expect. And so, yeah. and, and you hear people all the time, oh, I try everything and I just can't put on any muscle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's telling you something. Yeah. <laughs> but the, as, you, as you said, the myth's still there that, oh, I can't do weights because I want to get big. Yeah. Yeah. So what you must have, I see you do a fair bit of training yourself. You've obviously been into tra- like being active and being into training yeah. to go down, get down this path yourself in, yeah. in this research. Yes. Yes. I've always enjoyed, you know, um, getting in the gym and, and um, again, I've been, I guess, a, a little bit lucky in the fact that I can put on a bit of muscle relatively easier. Um, and, and I've, you know, I've always enjoyed doing high loads um, strength training. Um, 
I've got to be a little bit careful now hitting hitting 50. Um, I've got a, a few chronic sort of injuries that I've got to try and maintain. I did a lot of, I was a racket sport athlete when I was younger too. So I did a lot of repetition work, which now I'm paying the price for um, because back in the, Back in the day, in the 80s, in the 90s, you know, um, it was very much about repetition, repetition, repetition. Um, practice makes perfect, that sort of stuff, to the point where me and a lot of my mates who, um, you know, uh, one of my mates uh, went to the Olympics in 96, he's now having, you know, two hip transplants, you know, because his, his hips are basically gone. So, you know, we've got to be a lot more smarter in how we train athletes now rather than just... Um, working on volume and repetition we've got to tr- we've got to learn you know we've got to be better at, at and smarter at, at training and so yeah I do a lot more about quality rather than the quantity and um, I've been lucky enough to still you know maintain a bit of um bit of bulk which is which I'm happy with yeah 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 awesome so what like sort of going back where we mentioned genetics before like that, that's another thing I've I've dabbled in research and reading into epigenetics oh, yeah. um how, what's your thoughts there on, especially with long-term stuff like that? Like obviously yeah. athletes are putting themselves under a, a lot of load, repetitive movements, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, they're still, they're, they're supporting that with, with training in most cases. Um, do you think a lot of that does come down to the other like lifestyle factors, environment, nutrition, recovery, all those things? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got to look at, at the athlete as, as, in a holistic sense um, yeah. and as the recovery and, um, you know, nutrition diet is certainly um, as much as important, um, you know, as the training, because if you don't, you know, my, my philosophy for strength and conditioning um, is really about getting the athlete healthy so that they can actually do the training on the court or in the, on the field where they actually yeah. get their sport specific improvement. Um, yeah, and, and for sure. Yeah, and for a while there, I guess in the 1990s, you know, it was almost like this SNC or coach almost thought themselves a bit more important than the athlete, and, and was trying to do a whole bunch of uh, stuff that was not necessarily evidence based. Um, and now we've sort of come full circle and realised that okay, no, you know, you can improve. The athlete improves through their training, but. But all you know, the, the understanding of, of nutrition, recovery, um, you know, aspects of, of training um, in the gym, or or might be you know conditioning, is about getting the athlete to be able to then go on to the court or field to do what they need to do to improve. You can't improve them as an SSC coach. You're there to to, to be the the, the the support crew in order for them to be able to go and improve. Um, you know where where they need to. Yeah, hundred percent. I would agree for sure. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of people try or possibly yeah. go wrong. Is they're, they're trying to replicate yeah. what they do in the skill of sport in the gym, and oh. that's just not. It's not what the role of the gym's for. That's right, and, <laughs> and you certainly see, you know, a lot of Instagram posts where you see um, athletes doing what I call circus tricks, um, yeah. and and I just think, well, that's just. All you're doing is you're just, you know, making them better at doing that particular skill, which we'll, we'll touch on later on. But just very quickly, I guess, you know, one aspect of, of um, uh, that, again, Dors is, is, has been looking at, we, we might revisit it. it. It can be a little bit costly and, and that, that can limit our research opportunities too. But, um, you know, looking at brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, 
um, seems to be a, a key um, uh, trait for, um, you know, obviously development of, of neuromuscular strength. So if we can tap it, you know, look at, at, at the profile of someone, um, you can probably look at their neuroplastic changes um, and see who can respond to training better than others. But again, that, that takes us out, down a whole other track of, of potentially, um, what I'm going to call it, um, you know, genetic uh, screening, which which you don't necessarily want to do because does that discriminate talent, you know? Yeah. Uh, sorry. Sorry, Ben. Yeah, you just <laughs> don't have that profile. We're not, yeah. not going to take it, mate. Sorry. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, good luck with what you do. Yeah, you know, and and so you know that that's something that I think a lot of sports scientists are trying to grapple with at the moment. Is well, you know, we, we're on the cusp of, of possibly screening, uh, but then what happens? You know, how do we how do we deal with that? Um, and particularly when we do see people who've come through sheer hard work, um, you know, what sort of uh, uh, what 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 sort of potential are we knocking out for those who are going to work that little bit harder um, than those who think, well, I've got the genetics. I'm going to be, I'm going to be right. You know? Yeah. It's easy straight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably a good segue into our next topic. What you mentioned before the circus tricks. <laughs> it's um, I guess it's, it's probably not, not that different in, in field sports as well, but it's a big thing in our sport of, of motocross is, people training on BOSU balls, Swiss balls, unstable surfaces. Yeah. Like you say, looks cool on Instagram, gets plenty of likes. But tell us about the research you did there and the, yeah. the findings you found when we compare a stable surface to an unstable surface. Yeah, so this, again, sort of came from the early 2000s when, um, yeah, BOSU balls and Swiss balls started to infiltrate gyms. Um, and, and there were a lot of uh, people around that time making, again, unsubstantiated claims about the ability of, of training on, on, you know, on these unstable services, whether, you know, it's possible ball or whether it's a stadiometer type thing or, or whatever, uh, was going to increase your strength um, significantly because you are now recruiting more muscle during, during the, you know, the exercise um, and, and therefore, you know, it'll, it'll translate into your, you know, your, your sport or, or general strength. So um, around 2006, myself and, and another guy, Craig Goodman, who's a muscle physiologist and does a lot of work with, um, looks at taurine and, and how taurine, um, you know, sort of influences uh, strength outcomes and that sort of, you know, muscle morphology. Um, we kind of just went, this, is, this just doesn't seem to makes sense so we were able to pull together you know a, a study where we just simply compared um a, a bench press um on a swiss ball versus a bench press on a traditional bench and uh it was going to be uh looking at one rm strength because the first question that we wanted to answer was uh if you're on a, on a swiss ball do can you can you basically push out a one rm that's exactly mm. the same as being on a bench. Yeah. Because again, you would read a fair amount of, and this came a lot from the, I guess the glossy type magazine, uh, strength magazines uh, where 
the, whoever was writing would say, well, you know, you've got to make sure that you drop your, your load by 60% because you're on an unstable surface. And, you know, but, you, but it's, you're doing the equivalent of, of doing a 1RM on a, on a, on a bench. Yeah. I'm like, hmm, all right, that's interesting. So <laughs> what we basically did was we obviously had two groups. Um, we, got, uh, we wanted to work out the 1RM on, on a bench and then we did a 1RM on a uh, uh, ball. And funnily enough, we didn't find a difference. So whoever was, you know, and, and, and we obviously crossed over. So whatever you did on a, on a, on a bench, and some of the, some of the guys were, were punching out 120s, 130, 1RMs, um, and then getting on the Swiss ball and doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the only concern that we had was that maybe the Swiss ball might burst, but, you know, we obviously didn't. <laughs> you know, they're designed yeah. to take a fair amount of, of, of weight. So we had no problems there. And then the second phase of the uh, study was to look at four weeks of training either on a Swiss ball or on a um, bench press. So we obviously divided the groups up uh, equal for their 1RM outcome, trained three times a week. Uh, we, we did a, a, from memory, I think we just, we did a, a pyramid type periodization. So 12, 10, 8, 10, 12, you know, we, we kind of tried to, to, to mix it up over that four weeks. And then we just tested them at the end of the four weeks uh, for their 1RM again. And what we found was that um, there was, and, and we, I guess as, as, as they sort of progressed, we, we, would, we would also um, change their weight so that we were constantly getting them to, to improve. And what we found was that the improvement was no different um, in the, in the, in the um, uh, whatever you train on, I was trying to say. So if you train on, on, the, on the bench press, you improve by the same percentage as what you trained on, on, the, on the Swiss ball. Yeah. If you crossed over, then it wasn't so good. So what we found was that it was, it was, it was apparatus specific. Yeah. So for people who train on a Swiss ball, they got better on a Swiss ball. If they train on a, on a bench press, they got better on a bench press. So um, it didn't matter. So what, what I guess the moral of the story or the take home of the story is that what you're doing is you're getting better on that particular apparatus you're not actually transferring that to something else. So yeah. if you are training on a Swiss ball and then trying to get onto the bike, it's unlikely, based on what we've seen, that you're going you're gonna to get that transfer onto the bike because that bike has got a different set of motor control parameters mm. to a Swiss ball or a Bossu ball. So, yeah. And you see it anecdotally too. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's on the, on the, on the bike or if it's on you know, a soccer field or whatever, you know, you, you still see them going, well, it have been doing all this sort of balance work, yet I can't seem to, I, I thought I'd get better at changing direction or, or, or you know, um, not, not, not tripping over when I, when I get tackled or whatever. I don't know what's yeah. going on. Well, it's because it's not sport specific. So that's, that's essentially the, 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 what we were finding and, and, um, you know, I think it has been repeated quite a bit. So the the, the discussions about the the you know is is that I'm not anti Swiss ball or anti bench. I'm just saying mix it up, yeah. keep, keep some variety. You know, so don't don't think that one is better than the other. Yeah, I would say the same. I think if you want to use one, use one. But if you think you're using it to make yourself better and it's actually improving you, then yeah. it's probably not. <laughs> no, um, that's right. 
yeah, you're getting better at the skill of standing on a BOSU ball. But uh, in, in our sport, I think people are good at standing on a BOSU ball because they're good at riding a bike, not the other yeah. way around. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Because, you know, yeah, if you think about, you know, they're on the bike a lot, um, a lot more than on the BOSU ball. So they can transfer that skill from the bike onto the BOSU ball. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, you, you're definitely right. It's, it's, uh, um, it's about getting good on that, on what you need to be getting good at. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So when you say there was no difference, it probably just, if we can clarify that, like you had those people hooked up, they had the little sensors oh. all over them. So yeah. there was, like, because that's one thing people will say, oh, it fires up all your muscles <laughs> to stabilise, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But that's when you say it was the same, they were recruiting exactly the same yeah. muscle. Yeah, well, I've, that's right. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I actually forgot about the fact that we did, <laughs> we did a 12-channel um, EC, uh, sorry, e, EMG, sorry, not yep. ECG or EEG. I get my electrophysiology all mixed up now. So <laughs> EMG, um, electromyography. So we had uh, um, t- trunk muscles, abdominal muscles, back muscles hooked up, and what we found with the um, amplitude of the EMG. So, so as a muscle contracts, it will fire and you see this squiggly line and we can look at the, the amplitude. We can look at the frequency it's firing at. Um, basically what we found was that there was no difference during the actual activity uh, itself. So the muscle was basically firing to generate the force required, the force required to produce to, to be able to, to push the muscle not because they're on a bossu ball or whether they're on a, on a bench. So even when we hypothesised that the bench would support and obviously drop the, the amplitude of the EMG because they had their back to be able to, 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 to push it, what we were finding was that they were actually using the bench to activate the muscle. So it, depend, it was just a strategy of, of the body, not the actual um, uh, apparatus yeah, yeah. that was doing the work. Well, it comes back to that intent thing again, doesn't it? Like if you're yeah. just flop, flopping on a bench and doing a bench press, not creating any tension, recruit, you, you, you're not going right. to recruit as much muscle. It's the same whether it's a squat, whether it's a lunge, yeah. whatever exercise you're doing. If you're doing it with intent and you're getting coached well on it, then you will be recruiting every muscle in your body. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and you know, we, we actually start to see this now in neurological diseases. So there's a similar... Um, principles coming across in Parkinson's disease. So what they're finding is that if people with the early phase of, of Parkinson's where they might be getting the tremoring and, and, and affecting their movement and they've got to take a drug called levodopa to help them um, move again or stop the tremoring, um, what they've found in America is that if they do um, either you know um, high-intensity cycling with a, a tandem, so they're, they're trying to match someone, so there's that intent, um, they actually don't need their levodopa for a good week or two after that because they've, they've had such a good uh, modulation response in their brain. And a similar thing is, is being shown as well with strength training. So if, if Parkinson's patients are doing strength training, they're getting similar outcomes as well because there's intent in the movement. Um, mm. so, you know, that, that's where I'm hoping that some of that will start to come across to Australia a bit more because we're still quite, you know... Um, worried about hurting people with, with neurological disease and what they need is, is good yeah. quality exercise. Um, exactly, yeah. So, yes, you know, so going back to your athletes, it, 
we know that this works because, you know, but it needs intent and it needs quality of, of the movement that will then get the, the neuromuscular response. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So where that's probably another good segue into the concussion stuff yeah. with the segueing off the Parkinson's because yes. <laughs> there is some, there's like, as, as you well know, I, I suppose there's, there's quite a bit of research now showing the, the link between, um, I guess, neurological de degeneration from concussion, etc. And in our sport, motocross, uh, um, it's like pretty much everyone that's raced motocross has had a knock to the head at, at one stage. So the really cool thing, I listened to one of your other podcasts, did the two, the two wolves podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the really, the thing that, that blew my mind there, which after I thought about it, it made sense, but you brought up that, that topic that, um, helmets don't actually protect our brain. That's right. It protects our skull yes. per se, but not, it's the impact on the brain is still the same. So yeah, that like, when I think about it, it's like, yeah, that actually makes sense. But I, I didn't really think about, you kind of think, oh, I've got a helmet on, okay. If I get a knock to the head, I'll be fine. It doesn't yes. matter. That's right. What, what uh, um, you know, I sort of, what I call that, where, where people feel that if they're wearing a helmet, they're going to be more protected is, is um, what I call a superhero complex. So what happens yeah. is that they wear a helmet and they start to feel like they're going to be in, invincible. Um, but in saying that, you know, obviously, you know, I, I ride a bike, it's not a motorbike, it's a, it's a road bike. Um, but you know, I will, irrespective of, of the laws, I would, I would probably still wear a helmet when I'm on the road cycling. Um, for the reason that it does protect my skull from any fractures, but I'm fully aware that, you know, I could, I could be concussed. Um, and, and the reason for that is that the brain is sitting inside a, uh, a, a bath of fluid and it's only only a few millimeters you know or, or even that but but um and that's known as the cerebrospinal fluid and that that you know nutrient gives nutrients to the brain it gives oxygen it takes out carbon dioxide waste products so it's there to, to obviously for the health of the brain but one of the, the the roles of the cerebrospinal fluid is also to cushion it a little bit against the skull now if you you know walk somewhere and you bump your head you know, oh, you know, damn. Uh, the cerebrospinal fluid is helpful for that. If you're doing some, you know, squat jumps, that sort of stuff, cerebrospinal fluid is good for that because it's just cushioning the brain so it doesn't sort of hit the hit the skull. Yeah. But when you start to get above, you know, 20, 30 G type hits, so one G force is one gravitational force of, of, the, hit of the earth. If you're doing 20 or 30 times that, so 20 or 30 G, that or more, that starts to work against you because the brain still keeps moving when you when you get a, an impact to the head, whether it's falling off the bike or whether it's you know colliding into an opponent or whatever. So that that brain still keeps moving, and and one of the things that we have to understand is that the brain is very um, delicate. So it's it's basically not like what you do in human biology at school and you cut the sheep's brain. That's a fixed brain. Mm. A, 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 a unfixed brain is like a little bit a little bit thicker than custard but if i you know was a bit you know frankensteinish and i opened up your head and i pulled out your brain yeah. i could squeeze it through my fingers and that's how delicate our brains are yeah so right. the other part too is that the outer part of the brain is gray and the inner part is white and the white parts of the brain help the gray parts of the brain talk to each other. 
and that's that functional connectivity that I just talked to, we were talking about earlier in the session. Yeah. And they have different cons consistencies. So what you have is not only the brain moving, but you have the brain moving at different rates and that stretches and shears uh, the, the brain cells or the neurons. And so in a concussion, that's what's happening. So the brain moving, different parts of the brain are moving. They're putting stress and strain on the, the neurons. And so when you do come off the bike, whilst you might not actually have had a, you know, any, any fractures to the, to the skull, your brain has probably had some trauma to it. So what I try and tell people, and, and you know, um, it doesn't matter if it's um, motocross, um, cycling, or even equestrian, um, if you come off the bike or your horse uh, and, you, and, you, and you get up, a lot concussion is not a loss of consciousness. In 90% of the times, a concussion, there's no loss of consciousness. But if you come off the bike and you see some stars, if you feel a bit confused, if you're a bit unbalanced, if you're feeling a bit, oh, a bit of a headache, um, they're, they're signs. They're four of about 15 different signs and symptoms of concussion. So the last thing that I would recommend is that if you do come off the bike like that and you start to feel that there's something not quite right, foggy, don't get back on the bike because your brain yeah. is not able to process and you're putting yourself at, at higher risk of, of uh, further injury. Yeah, for sure. It's something you'll, you'll see it all the time. People get, I'm, I've, I've been guilty of it myself before, before you'll have a hit in a race, like your, your number one goal in a race is to get to the finish line. And if you can walk, most people will try and get back on the bike. So yeah. they're trying to get back on. You can see they're not, they're, stumbling around that's right and i guess that's the you know that's where the guidelines for motocross need to be enforced by the organizers because mm. um earlier this year there was a, a coronial inquest in new south wales for three equestrian riders who died while while competing and and you know you don't want to have um, you know the same thing happening in, in motocross uh where it could be prevented now you know, um, I guess one of the things I don't know really motocross well enough on whether any riders retire prematurely for their career. But, you know, in football, um, Australian rules football in particular, you know, we've seen nearly two dozen young guys retire before the age of 26 or 27 years of age um, in absolute tears because they can no longer play the sport they love because they've had too many concussions. Now, you know, being a little bit bit um, uh, preventative, cautious, um, taking an extra week off and, and doing good rehab uh, post-concussion can actually probably extend your career by maybe five or six or even ten years. I don't know how, how long yeah. motor, motor, uh, yeah, motor, motocross riders can ride for, but for football, you know, you could, you could extend a player's career by maybe three to five years if they yeah. just have a little bit extra couple of weeks rather than trying to rush back into it too quickly yeah well that, that was going to be one of my questions what would you recommend for people like if they have had a mm. even if like you say like you don't have to be knocked out to obviously if you're knocked out it's pretty serious but you don't have to be not fully knocked out to have a serious concussion so what do you recommend for people in yeah. that recovery period well i guess the first thing is that if in doubt sit it out so if if you you know, or, or whoever you train or a parent of, of a younger junior rider suspects that they're concussed, 
um, sit them out and, and observe and, and watch, you know, um, because only a medical doctor can diagnose a concussion. So if it is obviously, um, you know, obvious symptoms, then get, get to a hospital or a, or a clinic to get properly diagnosed. Um, but from there, um, we need to implement some more exercise rehabilitation and, and exercise, you know, you guys and, and yourself are in a perfect position to uh, improve recovery outcomes. So up until 2017, despite the evidence emerging for probably a good four to five years prior to that, the, it was suggested if you work in cast, you do nothing for at least a week. So you sit in a dark room, you don't go to school or work, you don't do any physical exercise. And what we found was that people were getting quite um, depressed very quickly mm. because they were well, just not allowed to do anything. And I mean, if you imagine, yeah. I told you to, no, you can't do anything for the next yeah. five to six days. You know, how, how would you feel about that? Yeah, just, yeah. Sorry, you can't like <laughs> to do anything. That's too much for your brain. You know, it was just, and it was just, you know, pervasive everywhere and so what we now know is that if you are concussed obviously you've got to let the symptoms subside it might be a day or so or two um, that doesn't mean that the brain hasn't recovered but but what we need to do is start to allow the brain to to start to recover more effectively so light aerobic exercise possibly light um, strength training just just you know nothing that brings on symptoms but it's something to start to get the, the brain to, you know, actively rehabilitate the same way as you would for a musculoskeletal. Um, you know, you don't get them just to sit out and do anything. You try and get them into some sort of um, active recovery rather than, than just passive. And yeah. so, you know, one of the things that we want to try and stress is that, you know, as long as it's not, not bringing on symptoms, um, you can actually start to do some light exercise and some light cognitive stimulation as well. So, you know, even getting them to do some juggling might be good because it, it's stimulating their brain to, to do something that's not stressing the brain too much. And yeah. so this is, you know, and it's a graduated improvement. So as you start to see the, the client um, every second or third day, maybe in this um, rehabilitation space, um, then you can actually start to gauge, okay, how much more can we start to build up? No, we can't do it. We've got to bring it back because they're starting to show some symptoms. So it's a bit of honesty from the athlete themselves as well. Um, but by, by giving some, some active recovery or active rehabilitation, um, what we're seeing are better outcomes. It may not necessarily mean that they're going to get recovered quicker, um, but certainly they're going to get better um, outcomes in the long term yeah for sure so I guess it comes it comes like anything comes back to listening to your body a bit and not yeah. just be, feeling your way with it doing what you can but not pushing too hard if you feel yeah that's right I mean there is there is some stuff where you know it's called the, the buffalo uh, the buffalo treadmill test or buffalo concussion treadmill test where um, you can actually gauge exactly what uh, heart rate you can work out before symptoms start to come on so you can actually refine the real rehabilitation rather than a more guesswork approach so yeah you know, um th again it's you know I, sp I, I spoke to a bunch of exercise physiologists about two weeks ago who had never heard of the buffalo concussion protocol and 
And yeah. I said, well, that doesn't surprise me because for some reason I think there's maybe only one, possibly two places in Australia that have actually implemented the Buffalo Concussion Protocol. And it's very easy. It's really simple. All you need is a treadmill um, and a heart rate monitor. You could even do it on a bike. There's a bike uh, protocol now on a bike at Ergo. Um, yeah. But it's just a very general, you know, graduated approach um, until you start to, you know, and you get the, the ratings of perceived exertion and you also just get the um, perceived um, symptoms from the, from the athlete themselves as well. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. I like it. I can send you that. That's easy. <laughs> yeah, oh, that'd be great. That'd be great for sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, like I say, it's a pretty common thing, and I, I've I even had a whack to the head earlier this year. A pretty yeah. serious. Didn't get knocked out, but pretty was seeing stars for a couple of hours. That's for sure. So okay. Yeah. And yeah, like I say, I, I definitely had to take it easy for a week or so. Yeah. Yeah. And what we know too is that you know symptoms might resolve within minutes to maybe a few days to a week, but we don't, sorry, but we do know that that brain recovery through the the physiological research that myself and others have have done um, in the United States is that it might take about 30 days to 40 days before Mm. the brain has fully recovered. And so, you know, we've got to try and get athletes to understand that, that, yeah, okay, your symptoms are gone, but that doesn't mean that your brain hasn't healed the same way as maybe the, 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 the corky has resolved, but, you know, there might still be some underlying damage to the, um, you know, to the musculature. So, you know, we don't, you know, if you're coming back from a, um, a, a, a hamstring tear or a, or a severe corky, you know, you're not going to go straight back into full training. You've got to, you've got to build, rebuild that um, or else you're at risk of, of further injury. And we see that with concussion as well. So, you know, we know that, that you have a risk of, nearly threefold risk of further concussions if you have, have had a concussion. But we also know that there's a two to two and a half fold increased risk of a musculoskeletal injury following a concussion for that next 12 months as well. Yeah, right. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. Like people, especially athletes are competitive and they can see their goals get like edging away from them. It's, yeah. You're like you, you've, you, you want to keep if you feel it's like it's one of those invisible things a concussion you can't actually see it you haven't got a visible right. injury so yeah you, you you are inclined to just start going hard again oh absolutely and and this is the thing it's the invisible injury so uh you know whilst uh, people are, are quite happy to or, or you know they they understand that they've got to um you know with a musculoskeletal injury you know rebuild uh it doesn't seem to be the same for the brain um, which is a concern because, you know, the brain controls basically everything else in the body. Um, but we don't seem to give it the same respect as we do, a, you know, a quad or a hammy or, a you know, um, a shoulder or something like that for some reason. So, uh, yeah, yeah. We've, got to, we've got to change the culture towards brain injuries a little bit more than, um, and, and particularly at the sub-elite and club levels, um, the attitudes are still not changed. Um, whereas at the elite levels, they're starting to understand that, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm actually better off uh, and I'm being more committed to my mates. If I, my teammates, if I take time out and I don't try and push it or I don't try and go back on the field in the same game, because if I don't know which way I'm kicking, how, how am I supposed to be helpful to my teammates? Mm. But for some reason, um, athletes seem to think that that means that they're committed 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got to we've got to try and work on 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 changing that. But um, you're better off looking after yourself for longer term. But you're also going to be better off, you know, looking after your teammates as well. And you know, um, and I guess other riders too. If you're if you're riding and you're not quite, you know, hundred mm. percent. Um, you know, you're putting not only yourself at risk, but you might be putting other riders at risk if you if you crash into them. Yeah, hundred percent for sure. Yeah. So yeah, it comes back to more more education. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So that's why I'd I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast, Al, for, for right. that very reason, for to be able to educate listeners and yeah. and the wider audience. I really appreciate uh, it. Certainly appreciate it, and and you know certainly appreciate the the support too, and. You know, if anyone's listening out there, you know, the research, uh, you know, we need to do a, a, a huge amount more in the research um, area of, of particularly of concussion. Um, you know, and so one of the things that I, I try and uh, do is support the Australian Sports Brain Bank um, that is trying to understand this issue, um, both from a long-term perspective, uh, but also with, with short-term stuff that, that, you know, that we've been talking about as well. So... Um, you know, if anyone's able to help us out with the uh, Australian Sports Brain Bank, just uh, um, Google that, and it's at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney under the direction of Michael Buckland. Awesome. And can people check out your research there? Where can they sort of get um, hold of that yeah, stuff? So uh, I guess you can also uh, have a look at my stuff through my own website, which is neuropeers.com, um, and I also have some academic um, research um, sites as well. So I think if you Google uh, Alan Pierce Academia and Alan Pierce Research Gate, you'll find all the sort of stuff, particularly in strength training. I've, I've put all that stuff up there as well. So, but anyone can email me, and I'm, I'm more than happy to uh, to uh, send the papers uh, for obviously for educational purposes. Yeah, awesome, Al. Appreciate that. No worries. Thank you very much, Al, for jumping on board today. No, happy to. Thanks very much for having me. You're a man of much knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when, you, when you've been around as long as I have, I suppose you acquire something, you know. When you, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. You can only get better with age, I say. Like a fine wine. <laughs> 100%. Thanks, Al. No worries. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Ben Greenwood High Performance Podcast. For more information on this podcast episode, please check out the show notes and to check out more of my content, shoot over to my website, www.100percentstrength. That's www.100percentstrength.com. 100% strength to us means giving 100% effort to any challenge we face whether that's in life, whether that's in the gym, or whether that's out on the track. So you can check out some of our free content online. We've got a blog there. We've also got an email list you can subscribe to to stay up to date with events, tips and tricks on a weekly basis. And I'd really appreciate you give us a follow on Facebook or Insta too. Until the next episode, give it 100%. Peace out.